The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. And I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I hope you celebrated the winter solstice sunrise this morning. If you didn't, you have another opportunity when the actual time of the solstice is 9.33 p.m. West Coast time this evening. It's that point when the sun appears to stand still in the sky an opportunity for you to go within and connect in deep reflection to that still point moment. And talking about still point moments and reflection, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my guest today, Lynn McTaggart, who has been one of the few people who has been able to bridge the science and spirituality consciousness of today with the regular mundane world, the race about world of distraction around this Christmas time. So, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So, Lynn, I, I heard you talk at the uh, Science and Non-Duality Conference down in San Rafael a few weeks ago, and you did a beautiful flowing presentation of uh, the work that you're doing in the world today. So, I'm absolutely delighted you could uh, educate my listeners today and what's going on in your world. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. So let's begin, actually. I'd love to, to go back just a little bit to, to, I suppose, the turning point in, in terms of your recognition in the world, which was the book, The, the Field. And perhaps you could, uh, reflecting on that a little bit, looking back on that, what were the key elements that came out of the field that have brought you forward to where you are now? Well, I think, you know, The Field to me was a revelation because I started that book really just to work out why something like homeopathy works or spiritual healing because you know i had been covering modern medicine and i still do in my newsletter what doctors don't tell you which is now 21 years old and um in the course of doing that i kept coming across very good studies um showing that spiritual healing and things like homeopathy work and i kept thinking to myself wait a minute if you can have a thought and send that thought to someone else and make them better, then that completely undermines everything we think about how we work and how the world works. And so when I first started doing researching the field, I was actually taking a journey without a compass. I didn't know what I was even looking for. 
I just wanted to figure out why things like spiritual healing work. And so I figured if I just spoke to some of these scientists, they would tell me something about human energy fields and clarify some of the fuzzy terminology I kept hearing, like things like subtle energy. And I kept thinking, well, if you can have a thought like this, make somebody better, that's not subtle at all. That's pretty (laughs) overt. So um, I wanted to find out what this was, and I figured it was going to be pretty easy I was going to talk to these scientists, they'd give me a new paradigm, and, you know, I'd write up my book, and that would be the end of it. Well, I was in for a major shock, because I did speak to so many frontier scientists, particularly in physics, and I recognized, just didn't recognize that they were on the verge of a huge revolution in our understanding of the world. But the problem was, each of them had only discovered a little piece of it. Um, And scientists are very, very timorous about going outside their own little field of expertise. They don't like to speculate. They're taught not to. And also, they don't speak in normal language. They speak in code. You know, they speak in math. So after a while, it began to dawn on me that if I was going to put this, you know, this whole idea across, I was going to have to put it together myself. I was going to have to synthesize everything these guys were saying in their own little bit. And so that was pretty daunting because I'm not a scientist and, you know, I'd never studied quantum physics before. But I approached it like a journalist and I would speak to many of them, you know, 20 times, 25 times. And I think what what happened to me in writing that book, which was extremely hard, was it really changed the messenger because I started realizing even back then that... um, if we're on the verge of a revolution in our thinking, you know, if we're going to change it to a new story, then this changes how we also have to live our lives. So I always had in the back of my mind when I wrote The Field that there has to be a bond, you know, a book like The Bond that comes out that talks about how we have to live according to the new story. So could you just give us your best uh, description of what The Field actually is from a non-physicist point of view? Sure. Um, When you look at fundamental matter, which is subatomic particles, what you have is not little billiard balls. You have vibrating packets of energy. And these little vibrating packets of energy trade energy and information back and forth, much like an endless game of tennis. And in that trade, they produce a little energy. And that energy is, you know, pretty teeny when you're looking at just one little game of tennis between two subatomic particles. But if you add up all the subatomic particles and all the things in all the universe playing tennis, you come up with this unbelievably dense and unfathomable energy sitting out there in empty space. Now, they call it zero-point energy because these these little vibrating packets of energy, these subatomic particles, slow down but never stop even in very cold temperatures approaching absolute zero. And so they still carry on their little energy exchange. So what they create, what all of these subatomic particles create, is this giant quantum field. And what scientists have realized is that individual things are insubstantive. What matters is not the things, but in a sense the space between them, the field. And so... There were two implications of realizing that there's this giant field out there. The first is that, very simply, we're all connected. You know, the mystics have been saying that for centuries, and now we really understand it. And secondly, 
the other idea is that um, that um, that we are in touch with the furthest reaches reaches of the cosmos and all information, because the field is a collection, in a sense, of all human experience, all experience on the planet, because and distant galaxies, because subatomic particles are like tape recorders. They're encoded in, they are encoders of information. And if they bump into each other, they encode each other's information. So in a sense, this field is like the mothership of all information. It's like a shadow universe for all time. So that means it gives us a mechanism for how we can have these kinds of extrasensory experiences like um, remote viewing, for instance, or ESP or precognition. You know, we're just tapping into the field. So in that process, um, how have you discovered the best way for human beings to tap into that field? Well, there are one of the things I then moved on to was my book, The Intention Experiment. Um, That was produced out of a bit of curiosity and some unfinished business that I felt in the field because the field was really the theory and the mechanism of how all of these things could work. And just the short answer to your question is, Um, The best way to access the field is any one of those things. Uh, It depends on what you want to do. Remote viewing, ESP, precognition, retro, intention, intention. All of these things have great evidence to demonstrate they work. But for me, I wanted to look at science of intention. I wanted to figure out how, you know, if consciousness is an actual something with the capacity to to change physical matter. And that's what a lot of this scientific stuff was basically saying. So the journalist in me wanted to find out, well, how much? How far can we take this? What can we do with intention? You know, a lot of people have been talking about manifestation. So does that mean we can propel ourselves upward and fly with our thoughts? Can I, you know, fly on my roof and change my aerial with my thoughts? Can I cure cancer with my thoughts? And the thing that I was interested in the most was the power of, of the group. Because, you know, a lot of people were talking about manifestation and intention to um, manifest stuff or relationships. And I kept thinking to myself, well, if this is so powerful, you know, this is so amazing, then maybe we should be using this for something besides just, you know, manifesting more stuff. Maybe we should be using this to, you know, heal the world. So that's really what I was looking at. What conclusions, um, and, what conclusions did you come to through the intention experiment, through the book and the work that was done? Well, I looked, first of all, the book is a living book because um, I looked at and researched the science of intention and there is enormous evidence to demonstrate that consciousness is a power that can affect everything from single-celled um, organisms to full-fledged human beings. We also realize it doesn't. It's not time dependent. It can work backward and forward in time. I mean, there's a lot of evidence for that. But the thing that is the living book part of the book is, and I also um, want to say that I uh, created a kind of program for people to use. I wanted to try to distill the practices of a lot of masters of intention. So I interviewed Qigong masters, master healers, Buddhist monks, and I asked them what do they use to use intention you know, effectively. And while each of them had um, certain individual things, they had certain commonalities. And I took the commonalities and created a simple program that everybody can follow. 
so I used that. But the thing that I was really interested in was the power of group thought. You know, what happens when lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? And the evidence out there was tantalizing. There were a few interesting things done by the transcendental meditation people, etc., but not conclusive. So I wanted to just really look at that further. And so I couldn't find a lot of evidence. And so my husband one night turned to me and said, okay, why don't you do this yourself? Um, why don't you invite your readers to do intention experiments with you. And that sounded ridiculous to me because um, I'm not a scientist. As I say, I'm just a, a scientific you know, writer. But then I started thinking about it and I thought, well, the field was in 27 languages. So I have you know, many thousands of readers around the world. And um, I also know a lot of these scientists through my work with the field. So if I put them together and periodically ran an intention experiment on my website, well, I'd have the largest global laboratory in the world. So that's what I did. And I've been been—I've run 24 experiments to date. So, Lynn, you know, I, Lynn, I'm just going to hold you there because we're coming up to our first break. But I'd love you to talk about the results of those experiments when we return. Okay, this great. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. online community for positive change. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. I so invite you to go to my own website, www.petertung.com. All sorts of great information there, all the archive radio shows, my newsletters, and what we're up to at the moment, the Landscape Zodiac work, which is going absolutely wonderfully, and also www.myheartcenteredjourney.com, where we have our Ambassadors of Light program, not unlike the work that Lynn is talking about at the moment, and our next class will be in the first week of January, January the 5th, in fact, Thursday night at 5.30. So please do check out those websites. My guest today is Lynn McTaggart, and she has been talking in the first segment about the field. And we've just reached the point of uh, finding out what actually happened in the intention experiments that Lynn herself set up. So please do carry on, Lynn. So what I would do every so often is set up an experiment with 
uh, one or more uh, prestigious scientists working at academic institutions like the University of Arizona, um, University of California, um, Penn State University, Freiburg University, University of St. Petersburg. And I asked the scientists to set up some sort of controlled experiment. And then I would invite my readers to come onto the website and send intention. And we would have a program so they wouldn't know what the target was until we started um, sending, you know, until we started the experiment. And at that point, we would reveal it to them. And so we have done 24 experiments to date and tallied the results for 23 of them. And so far, 18 have demonstrated measurable, positive, significant results. They have included experiments changing the essential properties of light emissions from leaves, um, making plants grow faster, uh, purifying water, and lowering violence. And we just ran our most recent experiment was in, uh, we ran an eight-day experiment um, starting at the uh, 10th anniversary of 9-11. And I worked with a guy called, the, he's kind of like the Deepak Chopra of the Middle East. His name is Salah al-Rashid. And he has a large following in the Arab communities. And I invited him to be part of this so that we could create a new Twin Towers, a new East and West that wasn't about violence, but was about coming together and creating peace. And so he started out our experiment by apologizing on behalf of all Arabs for what happened in 9-11. And I responded by apologizing for what the West did in response to 9-11 and the um, injuries, deaths, uh, detaining and deporting of hundreds of thousands of innocent people in the Arab countries that resulted from our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then afterward, we got together and everybody, thousands of people from 75 countries around the world took part. Every single Arab country, every single European country, America, of course, Far East, Caribbean islands, Iceland, it was really remarkable. And people came together and sent intention for lowering violence in the two um, provinces of southern Afghanistan. So we will we are tallying the results now. You always have to wait several months after a peace intention experiment like that because you have to find out what happened and you have to give it time to happen and not just a week. So we're going to study that and we should have the results fairly soon. But the last time we had we did something like that, we did one in Sri Lanka. We had a 74% lowering of violence. We did a time analysis using an expert in statistics found that we were far less, that, that looking at what had happened over the two years prior, right after our experiment, um, and for months afterward, there was far less violence than there should have been. And weirdly enough, that 25-year, very intractable war, um, it looked like a very decisive series of battles had been won by the government during the week of our intention experiment. And a few months later, they took control of the North, where they hadn't had control before. And uh, a few months after that, that 25-year war was over. Now, did we do this? Who knows? But the point is, if we do five or six or ten experiments, then we might know a little bit more. One experiment doesn't make a conclusion, but it certainly gave us a tantalizing idea of what might be possible. So, Lynn, if any of our listeners want to join in future intention experiments, how do they do so? 
they can join our website, www.theintentionexperiment.com, where it says join the intention experiments. Just sign up, and then they'll get information about when we're holding them and how to participate. And they'll get weekly information about intention experiments as well as my other activities. Fantastic. What a wonderful opportunity for people all around the world to come together without knowing each other but with the same intention. It's marvelous, isn't it? Well, it's been really amazing to watch what happens, particularly in this last one, because we had thousands of participants from the Arab countries, and I was broadcasting a lot of it on my Facebook page, as was Salah. We then started finding that East and West began friending each other, so that we created all these connections and all this amazing goodwill between East and West. It was really remarkable. And as everybody has said over and over and over again, when we do these intention experiments, everyone feels this palpable feeling of oneness when it goes on, when we're in the midst of it. And it's just a remarkable feeling. Which leads us beautifully into your latest book, The Bond, Connecting Through the Space Between Us. Just tell us how that came about. Well, as I say, I wanted to find out, you know, how do we live according to the new story? But something really prompted me to look into the subject matter of this. Um, it came about for big reasons and little reasons. The big reasons were I wanted to find out why we're in such a mess right now, why we're having crises of every sort, you know, financial crises, ecological crises, foreign debt crises, euro crises, you know, everything crises, extreme weather crises. And the other thing that happened to me was a personal thing. Um, I have two daughters, I'm married with two children, and one of my daughters is very talented in drama. And she'd been chosen for the main part of her school play. But all of a sudden, she'd been shunted to a more minor role. And she would not tell me, and I could never find out, what the reason was for this swap. Until one of her friends let slip that a new director had come on board. And when he did so, another girl had lied to take over the position given to my daughter. And that girl, by the way, was my daughter's best friend. And I was just shocked by this behavior. And during a rehearsal, I tried to bring it up tactfully with her mother. And she just kind of shrugged and shrugged me off and basically said, well, you know, that's life. And I again was shocked, you know, really taken aback until I started thinking about that. And I thought, well, you know, she's right. Um, this is the life we adults have created for ourselves. You know, sadly, we have created and put competition in every, as the central engine of every structure in our society. You know, it's the engine of our economic, um, our economic system. It's the structure of our business model. It's the structure of an individual business models. It's the structure of our educational system. In our relationships, you know, more often than not, they're adversarial. And even in our neighborhoods, you know, God forbid, your neighbor has just bought a Mercedes when you're still driving a Ford. So I, my real question was very basic here. I looked at all of this and I wondered, you know, were we supposed to be this way? Was it supposed to be this competitive? And if it isn't, how was it supposed to be? What does the science, the latest science, tell us about this? Because, you know, the science we've been living by, the science that's created our story, our narrative to live by, is basically the science of Newton, where, you know, Newton created thingness. Newton created a, a paradigm of the world. 
that was populated by individual, self-contained, and very well-behaved things. That's what his contribution was. I mean, before that, the world was perceived as much more a holistic whole. But he perceived the world as these separate little things. And then Darwin came along, and Darwin, with his ideas about evolution, was hugely influenced by pop theories about population explosion at the time. And he believed that um, there just wasn't enough to go around, so life must be must evolve through struggle. And, you know, although he never actually said the term survival of the fittest, that was his friends, um, his ideas swept the globe thanks to the advent of modern printing. And he was like the J.K. Rowling of his day. You know, his books were sold out before they even hit the bookstores. And they had a profound influence on many burgeoning movements, you know, industrialization, capitalism. And everybody began to believe, oh, and colonialism. And everybody began to believe, you know, the fittest survives, and that's right and proper. And indeed, everybody does best for society by looking out for number one. And so that became and has become the mantra of our lives. And it can be summed up very simply as, I win, you lose. And so my big question was, was it supposed to be like this? You know, were we meant to be like this? And if not, how are we supposed to be? So I began researching all of the latest science, not just physics this time, but biology and anthropology and sociology and psychology and all the ologies. And the resounding answer to my question was no, we were never meant to be like this. In every area, nature has created us with a bond. And by bond, I mean a connection so integral and profound that it's impossible to say where one thing ends and another thing begins. And this is mimicked through all of nature. Nature doesn't have a basic drive to dominate. Nature has a basic drive to connect. And that's what I saw in so many areas. And except the way we live our lives, because we're living according to an outmoded story. So the science, uh, in addition to the quantum physics that you looked at, so in biology and psychology, was actually saying the same thing as well. Yeah, everything was saying more or less the same thing. We were we were meant to connect, and we see it in the way in biology, for instance. Um, well, we see it in in just the most basic way. I talked about subatomic particles, um, and I've talked about the idea that Newton described us as things, and and the world is populated by things, and we think of tiny things like subatomic particles as being the unit of the universe and you know scientists keep looking for the smallest thing in the universe that's what physicists do because they figure if they can find the smallest thing they can then define the big things and they've been looking and looking and the more they look the more they find smaller and smaller and smaller subatomic particles more complicated alphabet soups of subatomic particles. And the reason that they can't really find, uh, you know, the smallest thing is because the smallest unit of the universe isn't a thing at all. It's a relationship. As I said Actually, Lynn, that's, that's a perfect place for us to pause because we are at our second break. And we'll come back and we'll talk about that relationship on our return.
on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Just a reminder of a fantastic opportunity to go to Egypt in the second half of February. It's going to be a wonderful trip. And as Lynn has been describing, we are planning to be involved in assisting in the new dawn of Egypt through conscious co-creation and intention. If you are interested in going, please look, go to the website, CelticMysticalJourneys.com and go to the Egypt section and you'll see all the information. You can make contact through the website uh, if you'd like to come with us. Finbar Ross and myself will be leading that tour in the second half of February to Egypt. So back to Lynn McTaggart, the author of The Field, The Intention Experiment, and her latest book, The Bond, Connecting Through the Space Between Us. So Lynn, just before the break, you were talking about the fact that science is now saying that in, in fact we are looking towards a relationship as the source of all that is. Just continue with that. Well, scientists, as I say, have discovered that the unit of the universe is not a thing at all. It's a relationship. You know, it's a relationship between subatomic particles who are constantly trading energy and information with each other. And this whole idea that life is all about relationship is mimicked in all kinds of areas of nature. Let's look at us. Let's look at our bodies. I mean, we think of this as being the our bodies being the greatest evidence that we are individual. Um, and we, because we figure that we've got a body separate from all others, and it's developed from inside out, from our DNA, the central blueprint, um, to, which creates our cells and our tissues and our organs and so forth. But the latest evidence shows that DNA is only a bit like the keys of a piano. They sit there until they're played. And they are played not from something inside our bodies, but by environmental influences. You know, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the friends we have, the sum total of how we live our lives. That determines whether those DNAs get expressed. They, that, all those environmental influences affect a quartet of atoms that sit above the gene. So what this really means is we don't get created from inside out. We get created from outside in. We get created because of the bond between 
our genes, our bodies, and our environment. So we ourselves are a product, essentially, of everything, the sum total of the way we've lived our lives. So how do we help people uh, to make the shift that's necessary from the way we've been trained from uh, conditioning from early age uh, and then start perceiving, seeing things differently? Well, here's the situation. I mean, even if people believe me and say, yeah, we weren't meant to be competitive, we were meant to be cooperative, the problem is we've got to do nothing less than wipe the hard drive clean. It's not just about understanding this. We've all been programmed to act individualistically and competitively with each other. And I want to hasten to add one thing, because people ask me about this. They say, oh, well, isn't individuality really a good thing? Isn't, you know, isn't building a better mousetrap? Isn't, hasn't it always been built because of competition? But what I'm really talking about is not, you know, winning per se, not being inventive, not doing all sorts of things. I'm talking about the practice of winning at someone else's expense. That's the thing that's got to go. That kind of competition is probably the cancer of our times. It's the reason we're in the mess we're in right now. You know, the reason that we've got reached this end game of finance, of all sorts of things, the reason that our ecology is in such a mess is all about people winning at somebody else's expense. It's all about I win, you lose, because this is what selfish looks like. It looks like a complete breakdown in systems, and that's where we are right now. So what we have to do is nothing less than wipe that hard drive clean of that old programming about being individualistic at someone else's expense by being com competition and that being the only way to be in business and in our relationships. And I think there are four basic ways we can do this as well as cleaning up our society. And the first is we have to learn to see more, much more holistically because right now we've been taught just to look for things and what's in it for me. Um, we, have to talk, we have to learn how to relate much more holistically because the way we relate to people is we either look for people just like us or we look to people for personal gain. And so it's not about making the connection, the bond, it's about winning once again or there is something adversarial in the relationship. We have to enlarge our view of who us is. Because right now, us is getting a tighter and tighter ring fence and them a much bigger and broader base as we decide who's not just like us. And that grows ever larger. And we can do this very quickly through engaging in larger goals because larger goals always pull people in from us against them to all of us pulling together. And finally, we need, to be, we need to change our own purpose so we understand that it's very important that we become the change agents because, you know, we're very frightened at the moment. We think that we have to wait for the guys in charge to fix things. But, you know, the guys in charge, I mean, look at our political system in America and, you know, a lot of it is the same in the UK, um, is about people on different sides of the aisle not even be able to speak together. They can't even talk civilly to each other, let alone sort out problems together. So everybody has to learn how to 
um, to do this from the bottom up. And I believe the real change agents um, are people who start looking at doing things differently instead of being competitive, being generous. Because when generosity is the currency, the game starts changing. Now, there's a few uh, things that have come up just as I've been listening to you here. You mentioned earlier uh, in your intention experiment uh, about the fact that, that you offered forgiveness um, for what had taken place. So presumably that this is an important piece in this process. Yeah, I think, I think understanding, I think one of the things that's really important is connecting on a deep level. Um, I think what happened in that joint apology was us both talking about how deeply our, the people in our country felt, on each of our sides felt. Um, you know, the Arabs talked about how embarrassed and ashamed they were and also how they hadn't been watching things as well as they should have, but also about how upset they'd been by the response, by how many people had, who were perfectly innocent had been killed or detained or, or imprisoned by the, you know, the, the extremely violent response of the West. And then we in the West talked about how, you know, how, how awful 9-11 had been and how much it had harmed America and the West, but also about how shamed we were about the response of our, from our leaders and how we felt ashamed that so many innocent people had been harmed in our response. So there was a big, deep sharing and with that sharing and that, you know, that real sharing of how we felt came a connection. And that's one of the things I really stress in the book is changing fundamentally the way you speak to people because, you know, and changing what a relationship is for. Um, most people, you know, we've all been taught to learn how to debate so well that we're used to looking for the flaws in somebody else's argument rather than looking for the connection. So a lot of what I talk about is changing your perspective about what relationships are for and laying down new rules of engagement. And the first thing is something like considering yourself a vehicle of service to the connection. You know, changing your perspective so that no matter how different that person is, to make that the goal, make connecting the goal not a self-serving end, like being right or getting something from them. And also, you know, this power of sharing deeply and from the heart is something that can overcome the deepest transcendence transgressions and the deepest divides. It's interesting you mentioned the politicians earlier where they have this very sort of competitive debating, putting the other side down and it, it always seems to me that if you've got those people to actually agree to be on good terms and they still have differences in what they were actually uh, thinking or believing but they can actually debate it in such a way that they can have a different level of heart connection and the Canadian Parliament said they were going to do that, and they failed miserably. They've got into yeah. a, a big punch up this week. So, well, this yes, yes, yeah. So, so this actually putting it into practice is the challenge, isn't it? Well, I mean, one of the things that is coming forward in my in my paperback version of the book, but I give lots of ideas in the in the bond itself, is and one of the things I do in my workshops is train people in how to do this. Um, how do you? How do you? work out in a reasonable way 
a difficult divide. And there are many, many ways of doing that. I mean, first of all, I mean, and this is the interesting thing about it, is identifying the other person's core values and interests, you know, their underlying hopes, their needs, their values, their concerns, their motivations, their ideals, their fears. And when you look at that and you start looking at what's mutual, you find that there's an enormous connection. Um, but even if there isn't a connection, you find that um, that you can create something new and bigger and better when people, you know, when you disagree. Instead of having to demonize the person because you disagree, you find, you know, there's all kinds of connections. But you know, I mean, if even if you look at <clears throat> let's say, two different political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans in America, let's say. Um, it's astonishing how how much we agree with each other. I mean, you know, Republicans and Democrats, you know, want what's best for their children. They want, you know, they want good education. They want government fixed. They want to fix the parks. You know, they want to fix the roads. We all agree on all of that. We have different views about how to do it, but we agree on the end game. So, Lynn, I'm going to hold hold you there because we're coming up to our final break and we'll return with Lynn McTaggart on Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The new home for visionary positive change. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. I have with me today Ling McTaggart, who is talking about The Bond, her latest work in helping us to understand the connectivity that we have with each other and building relationship where we have a great deal of trust between us. And then I'd love you to continue by talking about how we actually build this this bond, this trust, this relationship with people that we don't necessarily agree with and, and also obviously our dear loved ones as well. Well, first of all, one of the most powerful ideas about coming together no matter what the divide is, came from a study from the 1950s, a psychological study. It involved 22 12-year-old boys. They were divided into two groups, and they were sent to summer camp, and they were put in two buses. 
they were encouraged to create separate identities. So one became the Rattlers and the other the Eagles. They were put in separate houses. They created separate flags. And they were engaged in highly, highly competitive games. And observing all of this from their perspective as the camp counselors were a group of psychologists in disguise. Now, these were in the days before informed consent. And so what they did was they engineered it um, so that the boys were always neck and neck in terms of these highly competitive games. After a while, they didn't have to engineer anything. The boys were killing each other. They were beating each other up. They were stealing each other's flags. They were ripping up each other's prize, prizes and trashing each other's living quarters. They refused to have anything to do with each other. So then the psychologists created a series of crises in the camp that could only be sorted out by the collective efforts of all the boys involved. So they um, put an impediment in the water supply, and the boys had to work together to get it out. And they put a truck in a ditch, and the boys had to work together to get it out. And before long, lo and behold, the boys began sitting down together. They began eating together. They began chatting together. They began befriending each other. And by the end of the camp, they unanimously voted to ride on the same bus together. And one of the leaders of one of the groups spent all of his prize money buying ice creams for the whole lot. It's called a superordinate goal. It means a goal that can only be accomplished by the collective efforts of everyone involved. And it is a time-tested and brilliant way of bringing people who are on opposite sides of the fence together. It's been used by, you know, organizations like a, a group Search for Common Ground, um, used it with groups, with with political groups who have been deadly competitors and, and, um, and foes to work together and to overcome these differences by working together on something else, like cleaning up the environment, you know, and it, when you have a bigger goal like that, magic happens because we know this from the science that when people work on a project together, their brainwaves start operating in synchrony. We also see that when people work together like this, let's say the Oxford rowers, when they looked at the Oxford rowing team from Oxford University, they found that when they're rowing as a team, they have a higher thresh pain threshold than when, than when they're rowing alone. So coming together for a bigger goal creates a kind of magic cohesion, cohesion. And it's the sort of thing that we can do. I mean, you can do in your neighborhood, even if you, you know, let's say you, you want to kind of clean up the litter in your neighborhood, or you've got something that you want to um, organize your neighbors to fight against. That's what we did in our neighborhood. We had Orange, the mobile phone company, wanting to put up a phone mess all over our neighborhood. And so we got together as a little housewife's brigade and we began um, working to, you know, to combat this. And we created a little protest movement. And we not only chased away one of the uh, giants of British industry, but we created and we found the soul of a neighborhood we never thought we had. So those kinds of things create amazing closeness. So that's the first thing, is looking at all of the kinds of ways that you can create um, kind of group goals in your group. And by group, I mean your neighborhood, your business organization, your community, your, um, your, your workplace. And you can 
do little things like forming a landscape brigade, you know, gardening, gardening or landscaping together as a neighborhood, or barn build something for a neighbor. And by that, I mean build a fence together, a wall, a bookshelf, a foundation, lay a foundation together, or, you know, plant together some neighborhood com- uh, or some community or communal areas, or in hard times like now. Bring food or other types of support to local people who have lost their jobs or home as a group. Those kinds of things are amazing bonders. So in terms of uh, beginning to live the bond, Lynn, uh, I'm assuming you do have a, a website and ongoing connections as you do with the intention experiment for the bond. So tell us about that. Well, what I want to also let people know about is the whole idea that you can become the game changer. Because, you know, we're waiting for these big guys in charge to do things. And the point is they're not going to. I think this is going to be a revolution from bottom up, not top down. And a wonderful example of that is Marie. Marie had a typical dog-eat-dog business. And she was so tired of this that she decided to leave change in the Coke machine every day with a little sign that said, your Coke has been paid for. Keep the spirit of live and pay it forward. This totally freaked out her co-workers. They began a spy network to try to figure out who the secret Santa was. So Marie ups her game. She goes to another floor. She starts leaving donuts every day with the same sign. This changed the dinner table conversation for weeks. And ultimately, it changed the culture in that business. So my first message to everybody is it doesn't have to take the big people in charge. It simply has to take the belief that each of us has, that it doesn't have to be this way, not for one more day. And your simple everyday acts of generosity will enable you to become a powerhouse of change, permanently shifting the culture of greed and materialism around you and creating trust and setting off a contagion of goodwill. So for anybody who wants to find out more or learn more how to do this, um, first of all, my book is available in, in all bookstores and on the Amazons, but you can also find out more or find out more about what I'm teaching and about creating bond pods by coming to my website, which is www.thebond.net. Lynn, I know uh, one of the things you wanted to talk about uh, was fairness. Yes. Fairness is a real unity and a a unifying factor. And here's the reason. It's really remarkable. I mean, we have, there's been evidence, and I talk about it in the bond, showing that we all have it's not fair buttons in our brain that ring like alarm bells if we're given too much or we're given too little, or if someone else takes too much or they're given too little. You know, it's not fair screams out in our brains. But we also have a real sense of reciprocity. We expect to be fair to other people, but we expect them to be fair back. And now we're at our most unfair in history, just about, at least in modern times, in Britain and in the U.S. and in all Western countries. And scientists who have been looking into this have found that the more unfair any society, the more everybody loses, rich or poor. They found, you know, in all the major social indicators like health, mental health, crime and violence, education. And presently, America, with one in 39 people who is now a millionaire and 39 million people, probably a lot more now, who live on food stamps below the poverty line. 39 million, larger than a lot of countries. 
in situations like that where there's not just desserts for just effort, where there's not equal opportunity, everybody loses. And in America, America is the most unfair of all Western countries, and it's also got the worst record of every major social indicator. And the UK is third worst. So I felt it was really important to explain to people how vital fairness is because fairness creates unifying factors. It, 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 it's a unifier. It creates trust really quickly. And the weird thing is we all have very similar feelings about what's fair. Um, they've even had an amazing study asking Republicans and Democrats in America to design the most, you know, the ideal society. What's the ideal wealth distribution? And they both described an identical society. Um, and it didn't look like America, didn't look like the UK. It resembled Sweden, which is, you know, one of the more socialist countries. But they both had ideas about fairness that were remarkably similar. So, you know, in our hearts, we know what's fair. So I felt this was so important. I created a fairness campaign and 10 fairness principles on my website, thebond.net, that people can download can, um, from going on the website. They're free to download to incorporate in your life. So, Lynn, we're actually coming up to the end of the show. It's gone really, really quickly, and I really, really appreciate you've, the time you've given us today. Do you have a, one final right. sentence statement you'd like to finish on? Yeah, I want people to understand that it's not beyond hope. You know, that even though we are in the middle of crisis, you know, we have two routes available to us. We are probably the most important generation that's ever lived. And everything we do is not only going to affect our children, but people for all time. And we are right in a fork in the road. We can either continue down the selfish route of ring-fencing things as more and more separate, or we can embrace the bond, which is our birthright, and learn a new way of being that will guarantee much more satisfaction, much more wholeness, much more happiness in our lives. And it doesn't take new new regulations it doesn't take new politicians it doesn't take you know new countries it just takes the simple belief in each of us to change what we're doing to become game changers ourselves to understand that generosity and the bond is the real currency that changes the game and to simply resolve that it doesn't have to be like this not for one more day Lynn, thank you so much. That's a great finish, and it's a great way to go into Christmas and for us all to be generous with people. And thank you so much for your generous time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, have a great Christmas, everybody. My guest next Wednesday is Dr. John Hagelin. He'll be talking about the scientific aspects of the field and consciousness, how they link together, and what we can do uh, to help the world return to a place of beautiful peace. I hope you have a wonderful break. I'll see you next week. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. We hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tung for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.